Um, thank you for coming. I'm glad that uh, a number of teachers were able to uh, come this uh, evening, afternoon, to discuss uh, and to hear from our uh, guest speaker, Dr. Yoel Finkelman. Uh, Dr. Finkelman is, among other things, Director of Projects and Research at ATID, which is the Academy of Torah Initiatives and Directions in Yerushalayim. He's also a teacher at Reshet Lindenbaum. Uh, he has uh, completed a, a PhD at the Hebrew University, um, the title of which was something related to religion and public life in 20th century American Jewish thought, and has written uh, numerous articles in different journals, uh, as well as a number of uh, booklets uh, for uh, a TID, uh, teaching uh, toward tomorrow, setting an agenda for modern Orthodox education, educating toward meaningful tefillah, and I'll just mention a rather uh, provocatively entitled uh, article in Tradition on the Irrelevance of Religious Zionism. Irrelevance. So uh, without uh, further ado, um, I also mentioned, by the way, Dr. Finkelman has um, older ties to Toronto. He spent a couple years of his uh, youth uh, in Toronto. And, uh, his uh, family, I don't remember him too much, but his family certainly... About this uh, big. Right. Um, has, uh, you know, warm connections with uh, many of us who are still uh, in Toronto. So um, it's really a pleasure to uh, ask him to Thank speak. you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, actually, the uh, people in immigration this morning were happy to remind me that uh, I had been uh, a Canadian resident, if not citizen, when I was too old to count to 15. Um, and they were quite concerned that my status may not be entirely legal and were reluctant to let me in for a few minutes until I convinced them that I was, you know, legit. Um, uh, so it's actually a pleasure to be back. And I think when we were driving today, we uh, passed by the apartment building where I lived way back when, when I was too short to remember. Um, I, um, I've been asked to talk about a topic that um, Atid has spent some time focusing on, and w what I want to do is really not my own ideas, um, uh, but really um, something that many of the Atid fellows, groups of young educators who come through our fellowship program, have worked on, and I want to try to kind of summarize some of the ideas that they came up with um, about ways in which Machshevet Israel education, Jewish philosophy education, Jewish thought education, um, can be integrated, should be integrated uh, into classrooms that are not designated as Jewish thought classrooms. Um, and really the overarching or the thesis sentence of what I want to say is that um, quite often uh, when we are teaching Limudei Kodesh, uh, we are teaching Machshevet Yisrael whether we are aware of it or not. Um, and sometimes it can be helpful uh, to simply think about it in those terms, to do things that we are doing anyway, uh, but if we articulate them to ourselves and to our students as being directly related to Machshev Yisrael, sometimes that can be um, helpful. Uh, originally, when I was planning what to do, uh, I thought about bringing in some of the particular class materials that some of the fellows had worked on, and in the end I decided not to, uh, for two reasons, both because curricular materials that are prepared for one context are more often than not not directly useful uh, in other contexts. Certainly the, the institutions that 
our fellowship program in Yerushalayim uh, are focusing on are very different in terms of their demographics and their religious ideology than a school um, like CHAT. And then um, in parentheses, it should be noted that most of the work was very orthocentric, um, which is not necessarily true uh, here. Um, uh, and also because fundamentally, I certainly believe um, that you kind of got to trust your teachers to know what to do with things in the classroom. And certainly there's no desire for anybody from the outside, certainly somebody like me who has not taught in high school um, for that long and not for many years, should be telling people who are directly teaching in high schools exactly how to do it on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute um, basis. Um, so I understand from speaking with um, uh, Dr. Malamut this morning and from some materials that I got looked at a while back when we were working on this, uh, is that uh, CHAT is different than the majority of day schools in North America in that it has a Jewish philosophy curriculum, um, uh, which is organized around um, largely around relatively contemporary articles that are accessible to uh, high school students, uh, organized topically. Um, uh, and it seems to me that there is, uh, I'm certainly not going to argue with the attempt to do such a thing. Um, generally speaking, classes that are defined as Jewish thought classes or Jewish philosophy classes, they work with a certain conception of the definition of the field. Machshevet uh, Yisrael, as many the term which developed in Israel and which many of the developers have more or less stated explicitly uh, is a term that was made up recently to try to get at something that nobody ever called Machshevet Yisrael before. Uh, and so unlike a class in Chumash or a class in, uh, in Halakha, uh, this is not a discipline that anybody ever defined before. So we're free to kind of define the discipline as we see fit. And if you're teaching a Machshevet Yisrael curriculum, a Jewish thought curriculum, more often than not, the discipline is being defined as teaching systematic attempts to make sense out of the core beliefs of Judaism. Um, and so a class like this is likely to focus on the medieval rationalists, um, what is the nature of divine providence according to the Rambam? What is the nature of divine providence according to Ralbag? What is the nature of divine providence according to Rabbi Yehuda Levi? Just line up the different opinions. Well, here are three different approaches within uh, Judaism. Or, as again, uh, the materials, or at least some of the materials that I saw from chat focused on contemporary articles that are also meant to be organized, systematic, um, you know, Eliezer Berkovitz is going to tell you something about the nature of halacha, and he's going to try to be systematic and organized about it. Or, uh, alternatively, you have a secondary article today summarizing what was Hasidut, and there's an attempt to be in some way systematic and organized. Um, it seems to me that um, that is a that is a way of defining. Um, Machshev uh, Yisrael and a useful one. Those kinds of courses have critical advantages uh, for schools. Um, it helps avoid uh, the kind of shallow religious thinking and the notion that Jewish truths can be offered up in some kind of simple and straightforward um, uh, fashion as if it's easy 
uh, to articulate and define. If you have a Machshev Yisrael curriculum, you, it's more difficult to fall into that trap. Uh, it's more difficult to fall into the trap of teachers um, confusing their own personal idiosyncratic worldview with Judaism, um, which is something that certainly happens. Um, uh, and at the very least, it is Jewish studies. It's Torah. It is something that is worth teaching in the same way that we could justify teaching uh, any other Jewish text or any other um, Jewish discipline. And it's the kind of discipline that is likely to be extremely engaging, uh, at least for certain kinds of students. Uh, by the way, f please feel free to interrupt at any time with questions, issues, comments, criticism, uh, what have you. Um, what I want to try to do is kind of expand the definition of Machshevet Yisrael. Um, try to come up with a definition that's a little, well, even before that, before I do that, there are dilemmas that come up in the kind of systematic, straightforward Machshevet Yisrael curriculum. Um, um, how do you be fair, on the one hand, present dispute and machloket as such, um, without coming across as saying, well, Judaism doesn't make any claims. Um, if everything is subject to dispute, so then, you know, what are Jewish beliefs? Um, uh, how do you figure out what issues matter and don't? Um, uh, is the fact that the Rambam considered this an important philosophical issue, make it one today? Uh, do we really know what religious and theological issues are central to adolescence? Um, are we making it up? Are we guessing? Are we really right? Do we know what, what, what issues matter and what don't? Um, finding staff to do these sorts of things is often difficult. Um, certainly in, in the Orthodox sector, um, there is a dangerous assumption that anybody with yeshiva education is qualified to teach um, Jewish philosophy, and I do not think that that is a safe assumption. Um, there is also, I think, at a more deeper level, um, there is a sense in this kind of organized material and organized curriculum that Judaism imagines truth claims as being structured, systematic, and organized. Um, and I think anybody familiar with the Gemara realizes that at least some strands of Judaism do not conceive of truth as being articulated systematically. Part of the magic of the Gemara is the way in which it can juxtapose contradictory ideas and is fascinated with the implications of both sides of a debate without necessarily being terribly concerned with articulating a conclusion in which the associated nature of the entire enterprise, and this is not only true of the Gemara, certainly true of the truth claims in Tanakh, try to pin those down in any kind of systematic way, Hasidut, Kabbalah. Um, uh, so uh, modern scholarship with its organized articles and the medieval rationalists with their systematic way of doing things um, can give us and give students the artificial and possibly one-sided idea that what we want to get across in articulating Jewish beliefs is something systematic and organized. Maybe we don't. Maybe we ought to be committed to something a little looser, associative, hard to pin down. Um, which is a reason um, 
um, why I think there might be reason to think about Machshavit Yisrael education and define the discipline in much broader, more robust terms. I don't want to give a precise definition, um, and the definition that I am going to suggest could easily be deconstructed, and you could easily tell me that if you define it that way, so everything is Machshavit Yisrael by definition, and then, you know, so that's a useless definition. But it seems to me that any situation in which we are constructing students and our own religious worldviews is a place in which Machshavit Yisrael education is coming into play, broadly defined. Um, and that is going to be inclusive of a much broader um, uh, scope of texts, a much broader scope of activities than, um, than just the curriculum um, in Jewish thought. Uh, more narrowly, that means um, that Shabbat tables, well, more narrowly, that means that any time a text that we're learning and material that we're learning um, gets at questions of worldview and attitude, so we are beginning to uh, blur the gap between the discipline of Halakha or the discipline of Tanakh or the discipline of Gemara and the discipline of Machshev Israel, And even more broadly, and here I run into the danger of defining things so broadly as to be meaningless, uh, religious worldviews are constructed in youth groups. They're constructed at the Shabbat table. They're constructed in extracurricular activities. They're constructed in the um, look on teachers' faces uh, when they discuss certain topics. Um, uh, um, and those are things that are worth uh, thinking about. Sometimes these things are articulated. Um, uh, a teacher may say something about the notion of tikkun olam and what that concept means. The expression tikkun olam has taken on connotations in the last 30 or 40 years um, uh, that, historically speaking, it has never had. Um, and a teacher may say something about tikkun olam, articulate a definition of tikkun olam in the course of a class. Uh, um, uh, and, and, and students will take that as a core Jewish belief, a core Jewish idea. Um, um, uh, you know, a youth group uh, leader might say something about the state of Israel that is grounded or not grounded, uh, and, and that will become a kind of idea that students take with them. Uh, and at times I think it is not articulated at all, and then we get into the realm of religious sensibilities, um, which, which again, at risk of defining things so broadly as to be meaningless, um, uh, we live a great deal of our religious lives based on inarticulate sensibilities. We have some sense that this is a good Jewish thing to do. Um, we have some gut instinct that tells us that this is not a good Jewish thing to do, or this is a good thing to do that isn't Jewish, or, or some such thing. Uh, a, a, a parent who is choosing between chat and uh, one of the alternatives um, is often not making a decision that is based on some articulate theory of the borders and internal boundaries of the Jewish community, but based on some gut instinctive sense that says this is a place that I belong or don't belong. Um, and uh, at least reflecting on my own experience, 
and um, those around who I've observed and spoken to, I don't, I don't think it's really possible um, to do serious religious life without those kinds of inarticulated sensibilities. And, and then we have a job as Jewish educators to do something a little bit paradoxical. On the one hand, we want our students, we want ourselves, to have these kinds of sensibilities around which we organize our religious lives, with which we think religiously. And we also have the task to try to articulate them, to hold them up to scrutiny, um, to ask whether they're justified, whether they're good, whether they're right, whether they contradict other religious sensibilities, whether they're coherent, consistent. Um, and, and somehow, when we do that, um, when we both try to construct these sensibilities and we try to articulate them and hold them up to scrutiny, we're doing something in the realm of Machshavit Yisrael education, again, given the very broad definition that uh, I'm willing to, um, to play with. Um, um, so then, I think we have the opportunity to think about how we might um, integrate these kinds of enterprises into other places. Certainly these sorts of things are happening outside of school all of the time, uh, and that perhaps we have little or no control over for better or worse. Um, uh, but certainly inside school, there are whole bunches of areas where we have the opportunity to, to, to work within this realm of articulating ideas, developing sensibilities, playing them off each other, articulating them, holding them up to scrutiny, um, etc. And what I want to try to do with, uh, with the time that I have is, is maybe just a list of different places where things like that are occurring. Um, that I'm sure, I'm sure everybody knows that they're occurring, but just sometimes just articulating them can be helpful. I've certainly found that articulating them is helpful for me uh, in, in, in the places where I teach and work. Um, um, so one, one place is, um, is introductions to classes and introductions to topics. Meaning, a student walks into the first day of Talmud class. This student has never opened a page of Talmud before. Um, if the only thing that the teacher has to say on that morning is, well, the Mishnah is over here, the Gemara is in the middle, Rashi is on the inside, Tosvot is on the outside, Tara'or is here, um, uh, um, Rashi script is a little hard to get used to, uh, start reading. Um, so, number one, you're going to have some very frustrated students. And number two, um, you've missed the golden opportunity. I assume that introductory Talmud teachers do not do that. So inevitably, they're going to say something about what this book is and why it is it's, wor it's worth studying it. Um, and that is a class in Machshevet Yisrael, whether you like it or not. There is an enormous difference between saying well, between schools in which there's no need for such a thing because the entire community is, exudes this sense of 
Gemara scholarship as the definition of your place in the religious hierarchy provided that you're male. Um, and then the lack of necessity to say anything except congratulations, you're old enough to study Gemara is, well, is itself a lesson. Um, or in another school where you have to try to convince the students that this is a worthwhile enterprise because this book is crazy and extremely difficult and impossible to pin down and totally idiosyncratic and frustrating. Um, so why am I wasting my time? And, and so again, every, every teacher with their own background, environment, ideals, uh, uh, community, um, uh, assumptions that work within the school or don't work within the school, you got to say something there. Um, um, uh, another place where I think these issues comes up um, is when the particular text that we're learning in a particular local place um, raises an almost unavoidable philosophical question. Um, uh, the pasuk in last week's Parshat HaShavua uh, that describes uh, the creator of the universe as regretting having created man. So it's hard to read that pasuk and not raise the question of anthropomorphism and not raise the question of what it means for God to regret and not raise the question of divine foreknowledge. Um, which doesn't require the teacher to pull out the Rambam and say, well, this is really a negative attribute and it doesn't mean regret and the concept of regret in reference to God means something different and it's a equivocal term. And you don't have to pull that out. It's possible to do it internally. Um, and I think, again, this, this is something that really works for me, is intriguing for me, uh, the notion that the Bible chooses to describe God as a character who reacts to what's happening. Um, uh, you don't have to leave the text of the Bible itself in order to realize that this is an example in which the text itself is playing with a major assumption about the nature of God. And you're still in the discipline of teaching Tanakh. You're not in the discipline of teaching philosophy. You're not pulling out the article on the nature of anthropomorphism. You're reading this pasuk, but you're, you're, you're using this pasuk as an opportunity to talk about the idea that Tanakh presents God as a character. Uh, with all the problems that that entails and with all the magic that that makes um, possible. Um, there are... Um, and this is an example that I don't like, but, I, but it happens. I don't like it because it's tangential by definition. But there are all kinds of tangents that happen. You know, teachable moments, if you will, where, you know, uh, uh, the story of uh, Lot and Avraham in Sefer Breshit, where Lot chooses to leave, um, you know, speaking of Parshiot HaShavua, um, uh, so, uh, you know, is there something there about peer pressure, about, about uh, the influence of groups and what happens in Sodom? Yeah, there's something there, and if that's a tangent you want to go on because it's an issue in school and, and, uh, or for some other reason, um, 
you know, teachers have stories that they like to tell and they always find an excuse to tell them at some point in class. Uh, all these kinds of tangents are opportunities to raise uh, issues. I certainly had this experience recently when um, I went on a recruiting trip for Midrash Livenbaum to England um, and uh, I had half a day of touring and standing outside Buckingham Palace watching guests enter. Apparently the Queen was there and there was something going on. And the, 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 the difference between the people for whom this was a serious endeavor, but it was obviously something that they were comfortable with, uh, people for whom I assume the British aristocracy had inherited it for generations, uh, and the people who were absolutely terrified and looked totally awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, and the notion of the, the image of God as king. And so I told this story when I came back to class, and it was just an excuse. Uh, it wasn't an excuse. I was, you know, thinking about it. But here's a tangent in class, and it's, but in some ways it's a lesson about what we might mean if we took, if we were capable of having the, if our imaginations were strong enough to take us democratic people, take the notion of God being compared to a king more seriously than I think at least I am easily um, do. Uh, another issue is um, Response in Hebrew, English? English, okay. So uh, my sense is that that's a question of, of, of tactics. It doesn't matter whether it happens the first day of class or whether it happens a month into class. At some point, there's going to be a conversation in your introductory Gemara class about what this is. What is this book and why we're wasting our time studying it? And so whether that happens the first day, in other words, you know the students, you know the classroom, you know who you're dealing with. So to do it a month later, that makes no difference. Uh, but, but when you do it, so, so be aware of what's happening. I mean, I'm sure you are. It's not uh, um, realize that what's happening is a le- lesson in Machshev Yisrael and not just. Mm-hmm. No, d- d- 
Oh, I'm sorry. Um, no. I don't mean that when you reach Vayinachem Hashem Kiyasat Adam, that what you need to deal with is from a philosophical perspective, a systematic discussion of anthropomorphism. I don't think so, and I think that that question is decidedly irrelevant. I agree with you about that. Um, I also think that if you are the teacher in the classroom and your conception is that this issue does not speak to me and it's not going to speak to the students, don't deal with it. Uh, the students with whom I deal and in my own religious life, this is an issue that is alive, not because of the medieval philosophical debate about anthropomorphism um, or, or divine attributes, but because the notion of God being personal is dependent on him being a character. And the notion of tefillah is dependent. And, and, and the notion of God's involvement, not, not the notion of God's involvement, the sense that I have that God matters in my life comes closer to the, the God as character of the Bible than it does to the God as abstraction of Rambam. Um, and again, you're the teacher. You know these students better. You know what you're passionate about and what you're not passionate about. So, uh, again, I don't mean this example to be anything like obligatory. How can anybody teach Parshat Noach without dealing with this issue? No, it's just an example. Uh, a practical and perhaps also philosophical question. Uh, how do you deal with the tension between uh, dealing with the text, so to speak, right? Uh, I wouldn't say covering ground, but dealing with the text and uh, dealing with these more, um, if you will, philosophical questions, uh, the issues, okay? Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the teacher who is uh, told, if you will, uh, this you uh, should be doing by the end of the year, and the exam is on this, uh, and uh, the kids like that, but they like, you know, Dune better uh, sometimes. Uh, they don't always appreciate what the purpose of that Dune, but they like it better. Uh, and the teacher likes it better also, but then I'm not dealing, you know, I'm, then I'm teaching philosophy, I'm not dealing with the text. Um, um, line, so well, first of all, that's really a question of classroom management. To, or to some degree, that's a question of classroom management. And it's a question of institutional policy. If the institution has, at the end of grade X, all of the, te all of the students take a standardized test on this material, then first of all, and this is an issue that I, I wanted to touch on later, I don't know if I'll get a chance, that's part of the school's hidden curriculum. And that's also um, a, an institutional decision that touches on how we conceive of the enterprise of Torah study. And a school that says, I'm going to let my teachers um, do what they see fit, is also, that's also part, I'm not advocating one or the other, there are advantages and disadvantages of both systems, but, but in either system, so that's part of the school's hidden curriculum, the students will understand that whether they can articulate it or not. Um, and, and so the individual teacher, if a teacher wants to be able to deal with the meta issues that the book raises, but given the way the school system is set up, I can't do it. Uh, um, so, you know, that, that's the kind of classroom management that each individual teacher has to, uh, you know, has to make. Um, but, but some of these issues I, I don't think you can avoid. 
Meaning, it's, it's pretty clear to me that if the answer is, listen, we don't have time to do anything. We just have to do, you know, Pasuk Taich from, um, from, you know, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, until Perak Kafdalad, Pasuk Kaftet, uh, then that is an educational folly. Um, um, and again, there's a question of triage. You wish you could do everything. You can't do everything. And in part, I'm trying to help solve that problem by saying, no, you don't have to do a two-day tangent that involves collecting all the sources from the Jewish tradition on the problem of anthropomorphism uh, or the nature of Kedusha or, you know, pick your, or the nature of divine providence. You don't have to do that. There's something happening in the text itself or there's something happening in discipline that, that demands, uh, and that's happening anyway. So it'll take you an extra 10 minutes. But, but you're doing it anyway because, um, and uh, a few more examples of that uh, shortly. Yeah. Machshevet Yisrael means philosophy. You know, it's really also a discussion of Jewish values that fuel who we are. I wonder if you want, if you were going to talk about teaching Talmud by teaching the values from Sugya, um, things that Scott Berman has written about, mm-hmm. or to extend it even further with um, Bill Berkowitz or Rav Suriel used in terms of Rava, where they're basically learning the Sugya, not for the Sugya's sake, but for the values that you can extrapolate. Okay, right. So, so that's actually a great segue into another piece that I wanted to deal with, and that is kinds of meta-issues that a book as a whole is going to raise meaning not the specific pasuk that is so, you know, obviously loaded conceptually, but, um, uh, but if you have enough material under your belt, so Seder Nizikin has a conception of justice that is difficult to articulate. Um, uh, I'm teaching my students, again, not the same population as you're teaching here, not the same age group, but we're, uh, I'm teaching my students, learning with my students, the eighth parak of Sanhedrin about Ben Soreru Moret, and questions of Nidon al Shem Sofo, that we are, uh, we're going to punish this adolescent, attempt, you know, learning with teenagers, the notion of executing adolescents for their bad behavior has a certain intuitive appeal to it in any case. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, but the notion of Nidon al-Shem Sofo, my students said when we first came across this concept, well, that's not a Jewish ideal. Um, the idea that we punish somebody in advance of their crime. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of my response to that question is, well, one was, listen, we have to learn the rest of this parak, and then we can talk about what exactly this concept means and doesn't mean. But another answer to that question is, well, what makes it a Jewish ideal? It's not a Jewish ideal because you don't conceive of it, but here I have, uh, here I have a parak of the Talmud that's telling me that, it's, uh, that it is there, albeit questioned by the fact that it's... a Western ideal. And again, the Talmud itself reflects its own ambivalence about this by saying that we're never going to put this into practice. Uh, and that, of course, raises a whole bunch of other meta-questions, meaning sometimes there are concepts that are, they're meta-ideas in the text, in, 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 the, in, the, in the book. In, I, I'm, I'm, it's unimaginable to teach Sefer Shoftim without some reflection on uh, divine providential control of history. 
whether you think that I, as an individual Jew, believe that that is the way it uh, providential history plays out even today, or whether you think that this was Sefer Shoftim's conception, but not mine, or I am, don't know, but, uh, but if you just read and translate the Psukim, they're there. We're, we're, we're dealing with these, uh, you know, whether we like it um, uh, or not. Um, uh, um, Kedusha and Sefer Vayikra, um, you know, is another example. There is a notion of Kedusha that has to do with boundaries and borders and rules and regulations and, uh, and blood um, uh, and food um, uh, embedded in Sefer Vayikra somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you mentioned uh, Beit Midrash Rava, Rav Yehuda Brandis uh, in Israel has also done some very interesting work uh, recently on the relationship between halachic passages in the Gemara and agadic passages in the Gemara, and that a parak is structured around certain meta-themes. Um, and these are things that, they're there. Um, uh, uh, they're not easy to find, but they're there. Um, um, one of the... Um, uh, one of the one of the Atid fellows, uh, uh, Daniel Wolf, who taught in the Fuchs Mizrahi School in Cleveland, for many years before recently making Aliyah, uh, put it in terms of the concept of, uh, of understanding by design, uh, which is a popular theory of, uh, and an intriguing theory. I don't know much about it other than what I've learned from him. Um, but he says, part of teaching a discipline and teaching a course is being able to articulate what they call in this lingo an enduring understanding. Um, uh, in which all of the pieces of the puzzle are organized around a central core concept. You know, in, 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 in geometry class, it, it's going to be articulated around the notion that uh, axiomatic ideas can be developed using certain rules of logic to demonstrate proofs and theorems. Um, uh, and uh, uh, what, uh, what Danny Wolf worked on for Nevi'im Achronim was an enduring understanding that Nevi'im Achronim is about the prophet's attempt to compare contemporary political history with a messianic eschatological vision and to look at the present in light of that vision. Now, it's really possible to do not to organize your Yeshayahu classroom around the prakim that are most accessible, as important as that is, because try teaching Yeshayahu to, uh, to people without, or even with good Hebrew skills. Um, but, a, but how you're going to organize your understanding of this parak uh, in Sefer Yeshayahu, or these themes that come up, or grounding each parak in its historical context, if you think about the entire enterprise as what happens when the prophet compares contemporary politics and history to a vision of the ideal, um, then, you know, obviously this is a core Jewish idea that we're trying, um, uh, that we're trying to get across. Um, another area is going to have to do with disciplinary self-reflection um, 
what makes for a good interpretation? Um, if we're really there deeply in our discipline, it's a hard thing to do. Um, but how do we know that this is a good reading of whatever it is that we're reading and that that one's not? You know, if, if you teach modern students, if you teach Rashi to modern students, uh, their gut reaction, not only to modern students, I mean, I'm sure many of us have had this reaction as well. Uh, this is interesting, but it's not shot. It's something else. So what, what rules do we determine? What's a good interpretation? What's a, not a good interpretation? This is itself, I think, a Machshev Yisrael question. What makes for a good, good Jewish interpretation and what doesn't? Um, and also, in every particular context, um, uh, uh, not only uh, the kind of metacognition about what it is that we think about our discipline within Limudei Kodesh, uh, but also the much broader question. People spout all kinds of things. In, in, in the Western age, you know, kashrut can mean uh, checking the lungs of animals, and kashrut can mean paying migrant workers proper wage, um, depending on who you ask. What makes for a legitimate Jewish understanding? Does everybody who says, this is my Jewish ideal, uh, the rules for interpretation, what makes a good interpretation, what makes a bad interpretation? So we are inevitably touching on these. Um, it's not easy, I think, even to ourselves to articulate them because metacognition is always hard. Um, uh, and it's even more difficult, given the constraints of a classroom, to articulate that to students. But it's something that I think is good pedagogy when we can do it, irrespective of its value for, uh, for articulating Machshev Yisrael ideas. Um, uh, but also, but also for that reason, um, w one other yeah. What makes a good interpretation is often something that resonates with you, and not with somebody else. Rashi may speak to you, and not to somebody else. You're on bottom, and you're on rock, all the way down. And when you read Rashi when you're 20, you read Rashi when you're 50, it's different. So, so, so is is our Jewish ideas totally? Anarchic? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that, that that is, that's part of it. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Okay. It's right. I, 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 to say that Rashi is right, he's better than Ibn Ezra or whatever it is, right? I, I don't think any of us. Right. Should, Correct. Should, should, should no. But yet, on the other hand, we make curricular decisions. A Chumash classroom in which what you do is compare Rashi and Ramban and Ibn Ezra is very different Tanakh classroom in which the medieval Parshanum are not players. And again, there's an ideology and a theology that underlies it, which we can choose for pedagogic reasons to articulate or not to ourselves and or to the students. But, but we can't avoid saying that we th we're going to privilege one kind of interpretation over the other. I don't think we have a choice because we're going to go into the classroom, we're going to do something. That something that we choose to do is, among other things, constructed by our implicit or explicit articulation of what makes for a good interpretation. So you're right that there may not be any you know, point from which I 
can get an objective answer to the question. Uh, on the other hand, we still have, we, we end up dealing with it. The, the final thing that I want to touch on is, is hidden curriculum, um, uh, which just by calling it hidden curriculum means that it's hard to pin down. Um, and uh, hidden curriculum roughly means um, those things that students pick up by osmosis from the environment without ever having been told. Um, right in the classic formulation, uh, that your job is to sit in rows and listen and to do what you're told um, and that you are judged by powerful others who will give you grades and those grades will have implications for your self-esteem and your long-term future. Um, uh, Alright, so you know, being less cynical and sarcastic and nasty about it, all schools have a hidden curriculum and hidden curriculum is sometimes wonderful. If the hidden curriculum constructs a sense of community, constructs a sense of you know, mutual caring, of caring about those outside the school culture, uh, about attachment to the things that the school and the parent body and the community considers valuable, all kinds of things are happening, right? If you have a school that is part of its mission statement is Zionist, and if you ask the students anything about what's happening in the state of Israel, they cannot tell you at all. So you have a disconnect between the open curriculum and some aspects, uh, well also the, you know, uh, so uh, or, uh, there are ways in which, um, uh, uh, in other words, you could, you could do a, a class in your, in, in your Jewish thought curriculum on the notion of elu ve'elu divrei elokim chayim and uh, pluralism or multiple opinions within Judaism. Um, what that means off the paper is going to depend on who do you draw your teaching body from? Um, where do you draw the line? Not again on paper, but where in practice do you draw the line? Who's allowed to speak? Who's not allowed to speak? Uh, what look appears on staff's faces when they talk about this or that movement or this or that ideology? Um, um, uh, um, um, or also related to um, to what extent in this school are students' questions about what they're learning taken seriously. Um, again, relates to how far do we take this notion of elu ve'elu. Do we really value your opinion as a questioner or don't we? We can say that we do, but if it's not actually... If students learn that asking pesky questions irritates teachers, so then they pick up something about uh, you know, borders of opinions. Yeah, sorry. Um, it's interesting about Elu I was just teaching about Jewish communal organizations in grade 9 in Jewish history, and we got to UJA, and part of the mission statement, they write the words Elu Elu. So we discussed these mission statements and what diversity means. And then they asked me about the background to the term Elu Elu. explained the Gemara background, and gave them examples of Hanukkah, Hillel, Shammai, mm -hmm. and what they want to discuss every time we segue or we get to a background talk about something, I noticed in all the grades is authority versus non-authority. How much, how much can I feel free? I want to follow Beit Shammai, somebody said in the class for Hanukkah candles. And this is very interesting because, you know, what they were talking about was something else. Right. And um, 
we lost UJA in the process, but okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it was it was that's terrific. What I lost. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me that. And then um, it happened again in another grade. I was just talking about Barcoffa coins and some of his letters and his tone was about authority. And again, segued into. How much authority do I have to follow? If I don't do mitzvot, am I a good Jew? It always comes back to how much freedom I have. Where is my freedom coming from? How can I express it? Can I follow Beit Shammai? I mean, it's constant. With every segue, it comes mm -hmm. back to a major question. They are adolescents. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. Autonomy is yeah, for sure. It's a big question. And what I wanted to know was, um, you know, are they being fed these, this tone in elementary school, or is it just picking up in the home, or on TV, or, you know, in... Oh, well, and, and yeah, they're, you know, what is our teenagers in a, Fine. you know, in a culture that celebrates autonomy and right. freedom, um, you know, so... so I can use the question as an excuse to segue into the last point that I want to make, which is, uh, which is Lamai Nafkami. Okay, so what? Meaning, if, what, if part of what I'm trying to say is, well, we're doing it anyway. So I think what I want to say is, again, it's not my place to impose on any teacher and certainly not on any given school a particular model of how to do things. But what I do want to say is exactly the kind of dilemma you're saying. Really, what you're saying is, listen, there is this... This struggle that students are dealing with between authority and autonomy, this is a huge struggle for them as adolescents. It's going to continue in their Jewish lives into adulthood. One piece of the puzzle is that the cognitive element of education ought to address this in a, in a fair, serious, and systematic way. Meaning your students are begging you to use this as a teachable moment, and maybe it means bring the Rambam off the bookshelf, bring Rav Soloveitchik off the bookshelf, bring Eugene Barowitz off the bookshelf, and say, well, here are some Jewish sources that talk about the tension directly. What do we make of these? Let's learn one of them, because they're there. Well, let's learn many of them. Let's juxtapose them together and have a conversation. Again, depending on the limits of time and curriculum and, and how much your supervisors are beating you over the head to cover ground or, uh, you know, and, 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 and all these issues. But something's coming up, in this case, not from the text itself, but from the students. And so, so let's think about it as, as a, as a Machshav Yisrael issue. Um, and not just as a UJA issue or as a, as a tangent in class that's maybe interesting or not, not interesting. Um, so, so, so basically what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, we're doing it anyway. Uh, let's do it with as much forethought and as much careful planning um, as we can uh, muster. If that requires a trip to the library, if that requires a you know, conversation with colleagues that we trust, if that requires learning material that I, I didn't know before, um, if it requires rethinking some of lesson plans, or if it requires patting myself on the back and saying, oh, I've been doing this intuitively for a long time, uh, how good I am at it, um, that those things are, are worth, um, those things are worth doing. Any other comments or questions? I want to thank... Yoel for coming in and uh, sharing with us his, uh, his thoughts and his experience.